I said last week as we began in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we're making our way through the book of Mark. We just didn't decide to pick it up at chapter 13. We started months ago all the way at chapter 1 of verse 1. We've been making our way through. And as we came to chapter 13 last week, I said I originally thought let's get through it all in one week. Let's just sort of blast through it and because and it all speaks to a unified theme. Uh, but then I realized it's going to take us two or three weeks to get through it. So right now we're in the middle. We talked about last week how in this occasion where Jesus gave this remarkable prophecy of the destruction of the great temple that stood in Jerusalem at that time, that his disciples wanted to know when it would happen and what would be the signs of the end of the age. So Jesus went down from the Temple Mount and across this ravine known as the Kidron Valley. And as he looked up on the Mount of Olives, down across into the Temple Mount, he started speaking to his disciples in response to their question about what the signs of the end would be. And we noticed last week that he talked about many things, famines and earthquakes and wars and persecutions. But he seemed to make it clear that none of those things in and of themselves were the sign that he wanted to focus on. No, the sign begins to be revealed to us in verse 14. It says, but when you see... The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Now, we'll stop right there. Right there. Jesus is pointing out to us the sign, the pivotal sign that he was speaking to his disciples about that would tell us that the end was inevitable. He talks about it in terms of the abomination of desolation. I guess what we're talking about right here is what some people call biblical prophecy or end times events. And I don't know how you feel about that. You know, some people, they don't want to hear it. It's like, oh, that's all some people talk about. It's Bible prophecy and Bible. Other people, they can't get enough of it. Well, I was just in the supermarket the other day and I saw the cover of a magazine there, the Weekly World News. There it was right there on the cover. I couldn't resist. I had to pick up the copy. (laughs) 26 Bible prophecies the government does not want you to know. I couldn't pass that up. And there it was. I think it was right in the inside next to the article about Bigfoot's love child. The, uh, the article about the 26 Bible prophecies that the government does not want you to know. Well, there's a reason why they put that on the cover of that. They think it'll make people buy it. And it certainly did in this case. But this is what I love about teaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I don't have to worry if I'm teaching too much about Bible prophecy or too little on it. I'm teaching about it when Jesus teaches on it. So when Jesus talks about Bible prophecy in Mark chapter 13, well, then I talk about it. When he talks about something else, then then we talk about something else. But you see, it's a beautiful way to keep the proportion of what God means in his word, the proportion God wants us to receive on any particular topic, just Teach it like it says it there in the book. But there's no doubt about it. Right now, Jesus is talking about signs and events connected with the very end times. And there's one phrase he uses here in verse 14 that's absolutely important for us to understand. It's that phrase, the abomination of desolation. That phrase is a quotation from Daniel. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 uses that phrase, the abomination of desolation. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. He writes in there that they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. 
What this speaks of is a complete desecration of the temple. It was prefigured by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are you aware that there's about 400 years of history between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? And something very significant happened in those 400 years. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian man, came and he totally destroyed Jerusalem and conquered that and he made a horrible desecration of the temple that stood there in Jerusalem. Why he profaned it so greatly, what he did was he sacrificed a pig on the holy altar of God and he took the blood of that pig and poured it out in the most holy place. And then, literally, he turned the temple into a brothel. And then he set up a statue of the Roman god Zeus and commanded all the Jews to worship it. And any of us might say, well, that's the abomination of desolation. It doesn't get much worse than that. But you see, Jesus is telling us here, hundreds of years after Antiochus Epiphanes did that, that the abomination of desolation still hasn't happened yet. He says it's going to happen. So what we have to say is what Antiochus did was an anticipation of it. It was a preview of it, but it didn't fulfill it, not in its fullness. But what it's talking about is going to be something similar to that, a terrible profaning of the Jewish temple. And really, it's profaning it through idolatry. That's the idea behind this word abomination. Whenever you find this word abomination in the Old Testament, matter of fact, you might just want to take your concordance or your Bible search program and type in the word abomination and confine the search to the Old Testament and look at it. And every time it's listed, you'll see that it's connected with idolatry. This is spoken of as an idolatrous image, and the idolatrous image is set up in the temple itself. That's what it says there in verse 14, standing where it ought not, or as Matthew chapter 24 has it, standing in the holy place. And that was the back part of the temple, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was set up and the high priest would meet with God once a year. Could you imagine setting up an idol right there and commanding people to worship it? Well, it would be a horrible form of idolatry. But this is not just setting up an idol in the temple. That would be an abomination. This is the abomination of desolation, which means that it's the abomination so severe, so terrible, that it brings upon, it brings in its wake desolation. Desolation, judgment, destruction follows it in a horrible and comprehensive way. So again, when you think of that word abomination, connect it with idolatry set up in the temple. I had a car once, a 1967 Ford Falcon Futura. Man, that thing was a wreck. It looked terrible. It ran pretty good. I bought it for $175. And I drove it around, I drove it in the ground for a couple years. And uh, it looked so bad that I, I, I got a personalized license plate for it. First time, only time I've ever done that. And what I did was I just took out some vowels and I had the license plate for it, abomination. Because, man, that's what that car was. But it was not the abomination of desolation. Jesus is talking about something completely different here, about an idolatrous image set up in the temple. Now, did you know that something very nearly like this happened in 40 AD when Caligula was the emperor of Rome? He was a madman. 
And he found out that the Jews worshipped in a temple that didn't have an image in it. No, to a Roman, that didn't make any sense because all their temples had Zeus or Aphrodite or Minerva or whoever in the different temples. And so, well, a temple without an image. He said, I'll give him an image. I'll give him a statue of me. And so he put a statue of himself on a ship and sent it on its way from Rome to Jerusalem. And he said, when it arrives there, I want you to put it in the temple. But he died before it ever got to Jerusalem. And when he died, they called the whole plan off. But in any regard, the abomination of desolation speaks of this ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple, of this idolatrous image in the holy place itself, which will inevitably result in the judgment of God. It is the abomination that brings desolation. And Jesus said, this is the sign to look for. Now, this same idea is repeated several other places in Scripture. Paul elaborates on the future fulfillment of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, That day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, speaking about this future political and and social and, and economic superman, this world dictator who will set up an image of himself in the very temple of God. Daniel chapter 12 makes another mention of this abomination of desolation, and it gives a very important insight. It says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days until the end. That's amazing, isn't it? Daniel's saying, you can take a calendar, and when the abomination of desolation is set up, you can start marking 1,290 days until the Messiah returns in triumph and glory. I want you to see that when Jesus said, hey, the abomination of desolation is the pivotal sign, he wasn't saying anything new. He was really just calling everybody back to the book of Daniel. That's why he says there in verse 14, let the reader understand. Now, I know in my Bible, those words are in black. I have one of those red letter editions where the words of Jesus are in red. And those words are in black. And it's clearly evident that the translators thought that those words were said by Mark, not by Jesus. But I question that. Please remember, when Mark wrote his gospel, he didn't use a red pen and a black pen. This was added in by translators later. I think Jesus could have just as well said those words. Because I think Jesus would want everybody to understand what they read in Daniel. And he very much knew that he was quoting right from the prophet Daniel. So he says, look back to what Daniel said. This is what I want you to understand. Now, if the world is waiting for this abomination of desolation to happen. Here's the question. How can it happen without a temple in Jerusalem? I've been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If any of you ever have an opportunity to make a trip to Israel, you should go. Matter of fact, my wife and I, we have the privilege, a week from today, we're going to get on a plane and go with a group of pastors from all over our city. A kind man has arranged the trip, and he's paying all the expenses for a group of pastors to go from Simi Valley to a trip to Israel. And I couldn't pass that up. That's a great opportunity to go. And I'll be there at the Temple Mount again and taking a look at it. By the way, somebody asked me, they they wondered, they say, David, you're going with this group of pastors to, to Israel. Aren't you afraid of the 
of the threats of violence or, or, or rioting or, or, you know, just it could be a violent situation there. I said, no, I'm not afraid. Those pastors are pretty nice guys. I don't have to worry about them at all. <laughs> we really aren't worried at all, but we're, we're happy to go. And when we go and when we go up to the Temple Mount and when we see that area, you're not going to see a Jewish temple up there. Matter of fact, the presence that's up there is not Jewish at all. It's Muslim. And the Muslims don't even like it when you go up there and talk about the temple. There are Muslim, it wouldn't be proper to call them guards. They're sort of overseers up there on the temple mount. And and if there's a tour group up there getting a lecture from their guide or from their Bible teacher, and if that guide starts talking too much about the temple and where it stood, the, the, the overseer will come and move them along. Because they would like everybody to believe that there was never a temple up there. But there was. And I believe the Bible tells us through passages like this that there will be again a temple standing on the Temple Mount. You say, David, that's crazy. Don't you see the political situation in Israel right now? I mean, as a matter of fact, the world is focused on this piece of real estate. This is one of the huge sticking matters in the whole debate between Jews and Arabs right there in the Holy Land. Because they both want the Temple Mount. They both want to have a piece of it, or they both want the whole thing for themselves, and they're fighting over it, and the Jews say it's ours, and the Arabs say, no, it belongs to us. And this was one of the great sticking points in the negotiations that they had just a few months ago. And it's an extremely volatile situation politically. Why? It seems unsolvable. Matter of fact, it would take a political genius an absolute superman to go in there and to bring a peaceful reconciliation between Arab and and Jew there and make it to where the the Arabs could have their mosque there and the Jews could have their temple there. It would take a genius. And that's what's going to come forward, I believe. The Bible says that the Antichrist will come to prominence through a covenant that he makes with Israel. And I believe that at least a portion of that covenant, of that contract, of that peace treaty, if you will, will be permission to give the Jews the ability to build the temple there on the Temple Mount. And everybody will think it's fantastic. Look at it here. Here you have the Jewish temple and the Muslim mosque right there side by side. The man who brokered this is a genius of peace. The whole world should listen to him. And I think this is what's going to happen with the end times world dictator that the Bible speaks about, whom many people call the Antichrist. And I believe very strongly, friends, that there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Did you know that there's a group in Israel called the Temple Mount Faithful who are absolutely committed to rebuilding the temple? Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a popular movement across Israel. Most Israelis think that the Temple Mount Faithful are a bunch of kooks. Can you imagine what would happen if they rebuilt the temple and they started sacrificing animals? you imagine what animal rights activists would say? I mean, the people would think it's nuts. So most people think it's, it's strange. Or that, but there's a, a small group of absolutely dedicated people that say, we're going to see the temple rebuilt. They're getting funding. They're getting the furniture, the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, the implements that the Bible talks about. They're looking for all the accoutrements and the priests and all that to staff and operate a temple again. And they're very committed to it and they're very serious to seeing it come to pass. Matter of fact, friends, I I think this is going to happen. That this small, dedicated group will end up becoming the, the vanguard of a larger movement that will see the temple rebuilt. And so I believe that this is something that has to happen for this prophecy of Jesus to take place. 
Let me say one more word about this before we, we move on. Rightly, we as Christians, we get excited when we believe that we see Bible prophecy being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. I mean, it's thrilling, isn't it? To, to realize that there are groups very serious about rebuilding the temple. And we know that that's something that has to happen for the prophetic scenario to work itself out. We go, man, that's exciting. At the same time, I think it's proper for Christians to have very mixed feelings about the rebuilt temple. Mixed feelings for this. We're excited about being, seeing biblical prophecy fulfilled. However, we realize that there should be no more sacrifice made for sin, whether it's at a rebuilt temple or not. Jesus Christ finished the work of sacrifice at the cross. And friends, if there was a rebuilt temple and sacrifices were being offered in atonement for sin, that would be a blasphemous denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I suppose if somebody wanted to build a temple just as a museum or as a replication of something that once stood, that would be one matter. But friends, if there's any idea that any kind of service, any kind of work at the temple could atone for sin, Christians should reject it completely. We say God has a temple on the earth right now, and it's the body of Jesus Christ, and it's every individual Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and there was one atonement, one sacrifice for sins offered, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it's proper for us to be a little bit ambivalent, mixed feelings. We're excited to see Bible prophecy fulfilled, but yet we don't want to champion anything that would deny the finished work of our Lord. Now, if you go on here, Jesus says that that this abomination desolation will be set up, that it will be spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. But then in the middle of verse 14, then he says what the, the abomination desolation will result in. So let me begin at the beginning of verse 14 again. He says, but when you see... The abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. You get what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, if an earthquake happens, if a war happens, if, if persecution happens, he goes, listen, don't upset. Those are not in and of themselves the sign of the end. But when the abomination of desolation comes upon the earth, then you better flee. Run, don't walk. Get out of there because persecution is coming. And he noticed, he, he said, in Judea. And he gives geographical and and information that connects it with the whole area of Judea. He says, if you're around anywhere near that area, you better flee because massive persecution, massive attack is going to come upon God's people and the Jewish people at that time. And so they should just flee. When you see the abomination and desolation established, flee because trouble is coming. I need to sort of bring out a note here, and I hope I'm not going to confuse anybody, but some of you may be interested in my perspective on this at this point. You see, these words of Jesus have led some to believe that all Christians, that the church as a whole, will go through this time that many people call the Great Tribulation. I mean, here you have the abomination of desolation, which from other passages of Scripture seems to happen right in the middle of this last seven-year period. And the idea is, here comes the abomination of desolation. Here Jesus is speaking. He says, well, get out of there. See, it must happen. Christians must be here to listen. However, I believe that Jesus made a promise. And that promise 
was to catch his people up from the earth and to meet them in the air. It's an event that's properly called the rapture of the church. Rapture just means catching up. And God said that there's going to come a day where he, he just snatches up Christians and takes them up and meet him in the clouds and take them to heaven. Now, Christians debate as to when that event is going to happen in connection with these other prophetic events. So some people believe that it's going to happen at the very end of this time of tribulation. And right before Jesus comes back with his church in glory, that he's going to take him up and then bring him back with him in glory. Other people believe that maybe it'll happen in the middle of this period of time, right about the time of the abomination of desolation happens. Other people believe that this, this rapture, this catching away of the church will happen before this time of tribulation, before this last seven-year period that the Bible describes ever begins. Uh, I have to tell you that that's my opinion. Now, I believe that. Now, I understand those who believe differently than me. I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they're dishonest. I believe they're incorrect. I mean, because I believe that what I believe is correct. But I believe that Jesus spoke to us and said that we should pray to be counted worthy to escape this time and that he prayed that and he promised the faithful in the time of judgment would escape this time of judgment. That's in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. Now some people scratch their heads at this and I understand why. They say, well, listen, then why did Jesus even say this? Why did Jesus ever say, look for the abomination of desolation and when it comes, flee? Well, my question would be, Why did Jesus ever say it to the disciples at all? They sure didn't see the abomination of desolation. And for 2,000 years, the church hasn't seen the abomination of desolation. No, I believe that Jesus spoke this to those specifically who would experience the event as they came to Jesus Christ during the time of great tribulation. And friends, the Bible says that there will be millions of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ during that time of great tribulation. But I don't think that works against God's desire to remove as many of his people from the earth at this terrible time of tribulation beforehand. And if you want to know how terrible that time is going to be, take a look beginning at verse 19. He says, For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God has created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Friends, see, you see why Jesus was so urgent about it in the previous verses, right? Why he said, just go, because there's going to come after the abomination, desolation, tribulation that the world has never seen before. Friends, I want you to take a look at verse 19 again. Sometimes we read the Bible and the words just sort of just pass over our head. We don't even think about what it's saying, but look at those words carefully. He says, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. It's a staggering statement. The world has seen a lot of tribulation in its history. Jesus said none of it compares to what's going to happen in that final period known as the Great Tribulation. In the year 1343, bubonic plague started to sweep across Europe. Over eight years Two-thirds of the population of Europe was afflicted with the plague, and half of everybody who was afflicted died. 
It was an incredible total of 25 million people killed by bubonic plague over eight years. That's pretty bad, don't you think? This time of tribulation will be worse. Jesus said it would be. Or if you just look back over our last century, Zbigniew Zbrzyminski, oh boy, did I mess up his name, a former (laughs) advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter, very learned man in international affairs. Brzezinski said in his book, Out of Control, Global Turmoil on the Eve of the 21st Century, he set the number of lives deliberately extinguished by politically motivated carnage in the last century at between 167 million and 175 million. Can you believe that? 167 million to 175 million killed in a century by politically motivated carnage. This is wars and politically orchestrated famines and genocide and holocaust. 167 million to 175 million. That's a terrible time, don't you think? Jesus said this would be worse. Friends, that's a staggering statement. No wonder Jesus says that unless the Lord had shortened those days for the elect's sake, that nobody would survive. And I think that's what that prophecy in Daniel is all about. That's why when the abomination desolation comes, you can start marking off the days to the end. It's not going to go on forever. God isn't going to pour out his wrath forever upon this earth, but it'll be a limited period of time, three and a half years. And you know, in the time of any great calamity or, or, or tribulation like that, people have a tendency to trust in anything that comes their way. But Jesus warned them about that. Did you notice here in verse 21, he says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is there, don't believe it. There will be false Christs and false messiahs. As a matter of fact, there will be a tremendous false messiah on the earth known as the Antichrist. And he'll be trying to sway people over to trust in him and not Jesus Christ. No, in the midst of that kind of tribulation, take care, take careful heed that you do not fall for false prophets and false messiahs. See, look at Jesus' closing words in verse 23. I think they're very instructive for us. He says, but take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. See, Jesus told this to all of his followers as a warning so that they would take heed. You see, this isn't just for those who will come to faith in Jesus during the Great Tribulation. You may believe, and confidently so, as I do, that I won't even be here on this earth to see the abomination and desolation. I believe that that happens in the middle of this period of Great Tribulation. And I believe that God is going to catch his people away before that time. I believe this is an important word for those who are around to, to see it and who need to trust in Christ, and need a confirmation of those events as they happen. But, but I don't think I'm going to see it with my own eyes except from heaven. But I still need to take seriously this, don't I? Take heed. I've told you all things beforehand. It isn't just for those who live at the end of the age. It's for everyone to take heed. See, friends, we live in a cynical age, don't we? We live in a time when people are naturally distrustful of promises that other people make. I mean, the politicians make their promises during the campaign, right? You don't even expect them to keep them, do they? You don't. You see the television commercial, it makes all sorts of promises for this product or that product. What a wonderful life and all the friends you'll have if you start drinking this soda pop or that beer. I mean, you don't even believe it. 
It's like a game we play. We'll make promises that we don't really mean, and we know that you won't really believe them. We'll just say it to say it. Friends, sometimes we take the cynicism of our age and we apply it to the promises that God makes. We apply it to the things that God means, and it's a big mistake to do that. You see, some of us, we're we're at the place where we, we say, you know, when I came to Jesus 25 or 30 years ago, oh, they talked a lot about the return of Jesus Christ. Everybody was so excited. Well, it was the days of Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, and Chuck Smith was talking about prophecy, and everybody was excited about the return of Christ, and we were all on the edge of our seat. Oh, I can't believe it, somebody might say. I came to Jesus watching that movie, Thief in the Night, and everybody was so excited about the return of Jesus, and we were so pumped up about it. Because that's 30 years ago, and he still hasn't come. As far as I know, he won't come for another 30 years, or maybe 300 years. Why get excited about it at all? I'll tell you why you should, because Jesus told you to. He said, take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Now listen, it's easy to sympathize with that way of thinking, but Jesus told us to take heed. And Jesus has real definable reasons why he wants you to be ready, why he wants you to anticipate his ready return. I mean, first of all, you can just look at the newspaper, right? Look at the turmoil in the Middle East. Look at the stage that's set with the unification of Europe and the globalization of the earth and all the things set up in the world around us, friends. The stage is set. It's set politically. It's set economically. It's set spiritually. The, the stage is set socially for the exact kind of scenario that God said would be here in the end times. It's ready. Friends, there's practical reasons why God wants you to take heed and to be ready for his return. First of all, it has a purifying effect in our lives, doesn't it? You know, when you believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, you have a different perspective on your life. You live in a purer way. There's things that you just won't mess with because you believe Jesus Christ is coming soon. And that's a wonderful effect. Here's a second reason. It gives our lives a sense of urgency. What do you feel sometimes that you're just kind of waking up every day and living, going to bed at night, and just day follows after day, and it's just all a blur? I tell you, if you were convinced that Jesus Christ was coming soon, that would pump a sense of urgency into your life, and you'd start thinking differently. You'd say, the time's short. I've got to live every day as if it's important for Jesus Christ. Lord, you're coming soon. I want to be ready for it. Here's a third thing that this anticipation and taking heed does for our lives. It makes us bold in speaking to the lost. Well, you know that's true, isn't it? When you have a sense that Jesus is coming soon, you feel an urgency and a boldness to speak to others about it. You, you want to tell them, listen, don't you see, look at the newspaper, look at what's happening in Israel, right there in the Temple Mount today. Look at all these things coming together. Jesus is coming soon, and I want you to be ready. I don't think anybody would say that we need less boldness in speaking to the lost. We need more. And anticipating the soon return of Jesus Christ can give you more boldness. But there's a fourth thing that this does that I think is very important. Taking heed, being ready, anticipating the return of Jesus, it helps us to keep a light touch on the things of this world. Oh, we need that, don't we? You know, when you realize that at any time, at any moment, Jesus Christ could snatch you away as a believer from this earth and take you up to heaven and be with him in glory, when you really understand that and live with that in your thinking, you look at the things of this world in a different way. You say, you know, I can't take all this stuff with me to heaven. 
I'm not going to carry suitcases with me or a big duffel bag when when I get snatched away from this earth. It's not going to happen. And so it helps you to keep a lighter touch on the things of this world. I think we all need that, don't we? You know, we, we, we might be thinking, well, in the last 30 years, I thought Jesus was going to come, and he hasn't come yet, and we're older now, right? I mean, for some of us, for me, that was when I was a teenager. And, and I was so sure that Jesus was going to come back soon, and I still believe he's going to come back soon, but it's 30 years, and I'm a different person now. And now I, I look at my life, and, and well, you know, I, I'm kind of making my way, and I have a home and a wonderful family, and, and maybe sometimes I, I start to think that I'm starting to make my way in this world. Maybe it's more like the world that's making its way in me. I, I need to remember that Jesus Christ is coming soon to help me keep a light touch on the things of this world and to keep an eternal perspective. And friends, we should also remember that God has a reason for the time that he's established. No man knows the day or the hour, but but God in heaven knows it, and he has a reason for that day and a reason for that hour. You might say, Lord, if everybody was so excited about your coming back in the late 70s, why didn't you do it then? Well, think of what would have happened. Just draw a date out of the hat. What what if God would have returned on July 1st, 1978, and Jesus Christ would have picked that day to, to... catch his church up out of the earth and to, to rapture them away, to snatch them away. Well, how many of you would have missed the rapture if it was July 1st, 1978? How many of you would have gone through the great tribulation that followed seven years after that? And how many of you would have been prepared to die for Jesus Christ as a martyr for him during that time of great tribulation? All of a sudden you say, Lord, I'm thanking you that you didn't come in 1978, but I want you to come now. Come, Lord, before, you know, my children get any older, or come before that big balloon payment's due, or come before this or that or the other thing. You know, that's how we are. Friends, we can't say when, we we can't say for certain, and there's many things in the prophetic scenario calendar that we don't know for certain, but we can live with the passionate belief that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and take heed, and remember they told us beforehand. The way I like to think about it is that we're in injury time. Do you know what injury time is? It's a term used in soccer. I'm not here to recommend soccer. Sometimes I think it's a dangerous European import meant to take our young people away from baseball and things like that. (laughs) That's, That's another topic entirely. But when I've watched soccer matches on television... There it is. There they are. They're all out playing, and you can watch the clock. And the clock ticks down, and the clock gets close. And I know how clocks work in sports. When the clock ends at zero, the game's over. But there I am watching the soccer match, and the, the clock goes to zero, and they keep playing. I'm saying, what are they doing? Don't they know the time ran out? Isn't somebody going to tell the players? And then you see it up on the screen. They, they point it up in the corner. Injury time. So, well, what's injury time? Well, in soccer, they don't stop the match when somebody gets hurt. When somebody gets kicked in the shin or one of the guys is faking an injury there on the field, they don't stop the clock. They keep playing. But the referee notices on his watch how long the injury took. And he adds it up throughout the match. And at the end of the match, he adds on injury time. Now, nobody knows exactly how much it is. The, the, the announcers, they speculate. They say, well, I think we're going to have about four minutes of injury time during this match. But the referee keeps the clock, and he's the only one who knows for sure. The clock's run out. It's on injury time. And at any moment, the referee might say, game's over. 
Friends, we're on injury time. The clock's run out. God up in heaven has his watch going, and he's going, I'm giving you a few more years, a few more hours. Only God knows for sure when injury time's over. So we need to stay close to him, don't we? We need to pay attention to him and and draw closer and closer to him. Let me present it to you this way. If, If a person woke up every morning, and if they said, maybe as a part of their morning prayer, their morning routine, maybe part of their prayer over breakfast or that cup of coffee in the morning, they said, Jesus is coming soon, and I need to live my life like he is coming soon. Would that make their walk with the Lord better or worse? It can't hurt, can it? It'd give you passion, and you'd fulfill what Jesus told us here, to take heed that he's told us all things beforehand. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? If you're not, right now we can pray together, and and the Lord can make you ready. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the words of Jesus. And Lord, we're not going to say that we understand all the intricacies of prophecy and we know that there's some things that believers disagree on or, or, or debate about, but Lord, there's no denying this central message that we need to be ready. So help us, Lord. And I, I pray for, in particular, anybody here this morning who's not ready. Maybe they're not ready because they've never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Well, Lord, I pray that right now, in a quiet moment, that they would speak to you and say, I I give my life to you, Jesus. I want you to be my sacrifice for sins. Father, maybe there's others of us here this morning. We we know you, we love you, but, but the world has just found too much of its way in us. We want to keep a light touch on the things of this world and be ready for your return. Lord, work that deep in our hearts. We don't want it performed just in a superficial way, just in a way that we'll forget as soon as we uh, step in our car on the way out. Work in us a, a passion and a remembrance for the return of Jesus Christ. and Give us a boldness to carry that message to others. We thank you, we praise you for your word and its power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.